A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, what time is it? It is time to contemplate time. Which, by the way, according to Fizz Org, is one of the most popular nouns in the English language. Huh. Well, that, that makes sense. We are increasingly uh, concerned with time uh, as we grow older and as a culture, we're just in- entirely consumed by it. Mm-hmm. Now, do you have a timekeeping device on yourself right now? I do not. You do not. I, weirdly enough, do not as well. I left my watch in the drawer and I left my phone on the, the desktop. However... Uh, Noel has like three computers over there. I know. Our producer Noel has a timekeeping device. Is ticking us off right now. Yeah. Shaking his head. Well, you know, it's it's interesting to think about about time. I mean, well, it's more than interesting. It's like mind rending to really think about time. Time is this 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 well of a topic that you can just throw yourself down and just never reach the bottom. We could probably do twenty separate podcast episodes on time, and we will not, um, right. because I think you guys would all go a little bit nuts. Uh, but to tease about uh, apart time is is like trying to tease apart, you know, a million threads that are tangled together, because you have all sorts of ideas involved in in, in when did time begin? Uh, what was there before time? What is time really? Is it a mental construct? Is it a, you know, a physical construct? A, you know, how does it really uh, work for us? And is it ultimately an illusion? So we're going to try to talk about some of these topics and also talk about the mechanics of time itself. Yeah, I think time is, is, is a topic where you ask different people in different disciplines, you'll get slightly different answers. Time to the physicist is different than uh, than time to the, uh, the theologian, to the philosopher, uh, to... Uh, uh, to to a biologist, uh, you can into all these areas, and it and you get slightly different answers. Uh, we were kind of, uh, I mean, we've always been intrigued with time, but uh, but particularly propelled to tackle it this week uh, because I recently attended the World Science Festival. Um, as our regular listeners know, we both went two years ago. Mm-hmm. Then Julie went last year. I went this year. Next year's Julie's turn, unless somebody decides to send us both. We'll see. Or, which would be awesome. Which but, would be awesome. But yeah. generally, we're leapfrogging it uh, these days. So uh, this was a, I went to this really cool uh, lecture called A Matter of Time that included uh, Ira Flatow uh, from NPR, Paul Davies, the cosmologist, uh, philosopher Craig Candler, um, as well as uh, physicist Max Tegmark and philosopher Tim Modlin. 
and it was it was pretty intense. Um, it was rowdy. Yeah. Now, did you uh, you you got to stream this, right? This I did. Was available so, for streaming. right, if you go to the World Science Festival 2013 website, you can actually see this documented and watch it for yourself. And I highly recommend that you do because they really get into some very meaty subjects there, and, mm-hmm. and fists go a flying, well, metaphorically. Yeah, particularly fr- because of Tim Modlin, because Tim Modlin, um, who I was not familiar with before, he is a professor of, uh, of philosophy at NYU, and he holds a, a BA in physics and philosophy from Yale, and a PhD in history and philosophy of science from the University of Pittsburgh. He's he's quite a character because he was. He was thrown into the, he had a, another philosopher on the panel with him, but for the mm-hmm. most part, he's there with, with some physicists. And he is just picking fights left and right about the nature of time, particularly with Paul Davies, who's more of a, you know, uh, and I love Paul Davies. He's, mm-hmm. a, he's more of an old school, um, physicist and science communicator, mass communicator. Um, it, like, I actually interviewed him a few years back for Discovery Science. Wonderful guy. Uh, but he has a, a very, very grounded, physics-based understanding of time. Meanwhile, Tim uh, Modlin has this this idea about how we need to redefine mathematics. Uh, I'm, I'm poor, poorly illustrating it here, but he has uh, some some rather philosophic ideas about how we need to reevaluate the way that we think about time. Well, um, I think the, the surprise for everyone was that the, the philosopher typically on these panels sort of comes out... Um, as the second banana, right? Yeah. Because the physicists usually sort of take the center stage and say, you know, the following things, and you know, this is yeah. Physicists are grounding it down with facts and math, right. and they're you know they're they're supported by the by all these numbers. But Monley just jumped in there, and he did a really great job of actually sort of setting the tone for explaining what time is, and going into the physicist's territory to explain some of that in order to make some of his arguments. So. Um, the big crux of mm-hmm. this, at least in the first, I would say, half part of this um, of this talk, was this idea about whether or not time is linear, or uh, when it began, if it's uh, secular. Or, I mean, this whole idea of what can you go back and forth in time, and of course, according to the laws of physics, yeah, you can. It's not a problem. But we perceive time in this linear fashion, right? A beginning and an end. Yeah. And this is where it got very interesting. And this is some of the information um, that we wanted to really sort of plumb for you guys today. Uh, one more quick aside. Um, on each panel, the World Science Festival this year, I tried to pick out which panelist would make the best James Bond villain. And uh, Tim Modlin was my pick for this panel. I yeah. agree. And I would say, though, that Max Tegmark, my, he also, you didn't yeah, mention him, yeah. but he is very charismatic. He was also he sort of swinging along there with Paul Davies. Yeah, it was really, uh, yeah, really Tim, Paul, and Max that were really, really bringing it. Uh, everyone was great, though. So let's get back to time, and we're going to start. Uh, well, we're not going to start at the beginning because that, that's also a rather meaty topic. But let's just start with uh, with time itself at its most basic level. Time, as we perceive it, is the rate of change in the universe. And like it or not, we are all constantly undergoing change. We age. The planets move around the sun. Things fall apart. Um, there's also, um, as Paul Davies mentioned in this uh, talk I attended, uh, another classic way of looking at it is that, quote, time is just one damn thing after the other. <laughs> right, right. And um, the physicists on the panel, and actually the philosophers too, all sort of pointed back to this idea of, well, when did time really begin? And, you know, there was the idea of, well, of course it began, you know, something like 13.8 billion years ago mm-hmm. when the universe came into existence because with it, beyond the obvious, like protons, neutrons, stars, um, galaxies, space and time came into existence. So, obviously, without our universe, we wouldn't even be sitting here parsing time, trying to categorize it or abstracting it in ways uh, that we could better understand it. Yeah, so we have this interesting fabric of space-time, and anyone who's... You know, if, if you've listened to any kind of science podcast before, or read, a, read even a little bit about cosmology, or just really like Star Trek or something, then you know about space time. You know that that there's not just this situation of oh, where are you and what time is it? Time and space are one. We don't live in a purely three dimensional world of three spatial dimensions. We have this fourth dimension of time. This this entirely wrapped it up in it. Time cannot exist without space, and space cannot exist without time. That's the, the classic understanding of it. So time and space are tied together, and so things that end up having having an effect in space 
also end up having an effect in time. Uh, for instance, uh, we see this with time dilation. We see it with uh, with satellites and GPS. For, uh, as Davies uh, put it, time moves a little faster on the roof than it does in the basement. So uh, a, a timekeeping mechanism on a satellite is going to move faster than one down here on the surface of the planet, closer to the, the, the center of mass. Uh, likewise, a person standing next to a pyramid would uh, experience time at uh, an almost immeasurably smaller uh, pace than someone standing far away from the pyramid. Right. We all experience it in different ways. So you talked about time dil- uh, time dilation, right? Mm-hmm. This idea that uh, depending on where you are and how fast you are um, you know, traveling, right. time can be different. There can be that dilation. And so we know this because we actually account for it in GPS algorithms that satellites 12,000 feet up above the Earth use to pinpoint exactly where you or I are here on Earth as we look at our smartphone and try to figure out where we are on the map, right? So time dilation uh, has to be accounted for in these algorithms, again, because you have satellites that are 12,000 feet up. So we know this. We know that we're losing time in different ways or that time behaves differently depending on where we are. Yeah, you put uh, you you leave one, uh, one watch at the airport and you put another one on a supersonic jet. Uh, then at the end of that flight, you're going to have two different times on the pieces, even though they were synced up prior. Because uh, so again, mass changes uh, changes time, and so does speed. And although I want to point out that this is a, a fairly new idea, right? Before mm-hmm. Einstein in 1908 proposed this, uh, we were sort of uh, talking in more Newtonian terms, where uh, you, according to philosopher Craig Callender, had time being this unique, privileged presence carving up the universe. So we didn't have this idea of space-time, this fabric of space and time intertwining and uh, really sort of informing how time passes for us or how things behave. Right. And to take things back to the beginning, as we, we mentioned earlier, uh, the idea, too, is that with the Big Bang, you have a you have you have you have the expansion of space-time. So there's no time before the Big Bang. Time comes into existence out, of, out in the same way that space comes into existence out of that uh, uh, minute singularity. So you have this idea of the arrow of time, right? Mm-hmm. This this linear time being shot forth in an arrow, or as Paul Davies put it, puts it, it's more of the question of is it an arrow on a compass or an arrow shot from a bow? Yes. Yeah, he he went into that a bit about the the, the differentiations between uh, between arrows. Yeah, right. Which is the we you know we get down to this idea of linear time versus cyclical time. Yeah, cyclical and linear time. This is a uh, this is really interesting, and I've I've always found it pretty fascinating. Because um, when you measure time by space, you see how much of it goes in cycles: the sun, the moon, the seasons. Traditional societies often speak of time as cycles. Uh, we see this in Hinduism and other cosmologies that have really ancient roots. Things happen again and again, and anything we do is only meaningful insofar as it falls in line with the cycle of what came before. Meanwhile, due in part to uh, biblical traditions, uh, Western cultures uh, view time as linear. Things happen once and for all, and um, and all of it occurs on a timeline from creation to the crack of doom. Similar things might happen again and again, but they are not identical. So, on, on one hand, cyclical time, time is a circle, time is a wheel. Mm-hmm. It always comes back around to the same place. And anything that you or I do, they're only important because they fall into the, into these, these iconic, uh, shapes that have happened before. Um, meanwhile, uh, again, the linear time, it's a plot. It's a story. <laughs> and, um, as, uh, Mercedes Eliade points out in The Myth of the Eternal Return, uh, uh, the author suggests that uh, traditional societies see forces uh, of the earth recurring on a regular basis without change. And the rest of it see it uh, as this arc, as this timeline, as this ladder. And it's all increasingly annoying and horrible because we come to see that we make the same mistakes over and over again. We see the, the cyclical nature of our horrors despite our belief that everything is linear. So that's just just one one uh, uh, bit of insight into the way we view time. There was a really good uh, sort of reductionist idea on this. There's a video, and I can't recall the name of the video right now, but it was basically like the chicken and egg conundrum. Mm-hmm. So they took the chicken, it could be the chicken or the egg, and they, they uh, showed what linear time looks like. So let's say you start with a chicken, uh-huh. and you, then you see in the linear timeline an egg, which is the past. You right. see the chicken, present. And then you see another egg, and that is future, right? And you can easily extrapolate that to humans. So, you know, my DNA for the next generation is that egg. That's the future, right? Right. 
And then they showed the cyclical nature of the chicken and egg proposition. So you start or uh, with either the chicken or the egg. It doesn't matter because there is no beginning or end in this wheel of the chicken, the egg, the chicken, the egg uh, in this circle. And they are saying that you can very easily see how this uh, sort of traditional model, as you say, in traditional societies or in some Eastern countries, mm-hmm. would come to reflect something like uh, reincarnation. Right. This idea that you just keep ending up somewhere else on the wheel. Yeah. Or, you know, it, it's also interesting when you see... Um, See people uh, like enter into a, a you know a study of, of Hinduism, for instance, uh, with with a with a Christian background. You go into it thinking, well, where, where's the beginning? Where's the end? And it doesn't exactly line up like that. Of course, with both those models, you still have the uh, the big problem of well, what existed before that, right? Yeah, and then what exists uh, afterwards? Yeah, you you still end up with the same sort of cosmological quandaries that you do in uh, in physics to a certain extent. Um, so another part of this that that ties in nicely with this is that uh, and, and on a less grandiose scale, uh, much of the world is now ruled by clock time. Uh, you know, we, we look at our clocks, we're, we're syncing it, we know what time we need to get up, when we need to be in the office, what time we have this meeting, that meeting, lunch, the next meeting, uh, uh, downtime, the afternoon nap under your desk, followed by the your time to go home, your time to eat dinner, your time to go to yoga, your time to go to sleep, your time to catch <laughs> your TV show. Um, meanwhile, uh, in many cultures, there's still uh, much more of a sense of natural and local time. So in soci- societies that are based around agriculture, hunting, and other pursuits that involve human interaction with the natural world, time discipline is a matter governed by astronomical and biological factors. It's lunchtime because I feel hungry. It's nap time because I'm sleepy. It's time to uh, to harvest the the uh, the crops because it is time to harvest the crops. It's time to go hunting because now is when the animals are out, and, and so on. But we enter this w- modern world of uh, international media, international commerce, etc., and it's a world dependent all on rigid time zones and the interactions between them. Well, yeah, because I mean, we we had shifted as a society largely from agrarian society, right. which is ruled by the seasons, to this post-industrial society. For the most part, you know, uh, industrialized nations, which requires that you start to standardize time. Yeah, and, and it used to be uh, not too long ago that you you could not count on 3 p.m. in this town being 3 p.m. Right. in the next town. Right. So even though you had clock time creeping in, it was still very local. Yeah, but then you begin to see, uh, particularly in uh, in America, that they, there was this need for standardized time because you had railroad accidents occurring because people were not on right. the same timetable, or you had sailors who had difficulty determining their longitude at sea. So something like, say, an astronomical regulator uh, could telegraph standard times across the country so that everybody was on the same page. So it became a necessity of modern society. Yeah, and uh, one thing I ran across, this was pretty interesting, um, so there's a, in 1999 a man by uh, by the name of Mark uh, Lagesson from Auckland. Uh, he th- he put forth this idea for new for new Earth time or net. Uh, his his basic pitch here and there's a website where you can look it up. Um, he says he argues that since Earth is now a place, it's not just the setting but a, a place increasingly, and as connections grow, we'll need a common language of time. So uh, Net proposes to use a global standard time that measures a global day with 360 degrees, and then this would run along. It wouldn't replace our Current, complex yeah. system of of of, uh, of time zones, but it would run alongside it, uh, so that we can act locally in local time, but still and then act globally in new Earth time. Uh, so, for instance, like right now, I'm trying to, to schedule an interview with somebody in the UK for uh, for one of our episodes, and uh, I'm running, I'm having to do all that stupid math in my head where I'm not that the math is stupid, but um, but 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 I'm I'm having to calculate. All right, well, let's see. If, if he's in London and I'm here, then that's what time is it there? What time is it here? Uh, you know, and if you if you add additional factors into that, like heaven forbid you're doing a conference call with people in, in far corners of the globe, then there's going to be even more complexity. But if you did have a new Earth time, that could be just part of it. Be like, hey, uh, who wants to? Uh, let's have this meeting at uh, you know whatever new Earth time, and then everyone can line up in agreement with that. I think it's a, a pretty cool idea. I think it's a cool idea, but what happens when we go off Earth? Well, that's right, the you thing. Need interstellar time or stardate, right? Well, I guess. But for the meantime, you could have like you could have net and met. You could have new Earth time and. Mar- no, it didn't work. Um, you would have new Earth time and Mars time. So you have net and nit. And so uh, someone would and say, what time is it? And you're going to be doing more of that math to make you feel stupid. Yes. Well, then, then we'll need, then we'll need solar system time. And mm-hmm. then, you know, okay, it just, it gets, 
every time we try and make it simpler, it just gets more complicated. But but it underlines some of the the, the problems uh, because ultimately you could argue that all time is local uh, from a number of standpoints, even even physics wise, because we're talking about uh, the way that that speed, relation to mass, adjusts the the way uh, the way time moves, and uh, and also relativity, our our experience of time, just from a biological level. Um, you know, the classic uh, example from Einstein about uh, sticking your finger on a stove or looking at a beautiful woman, and how your experience of time doing both of those is somewhat different. So yeah, Paul Davies had a really interesting thing to say about this um, when he was talking about space time on the panel. And he said, you have to consider both time and space because your time and my time are different depending on how we're moving through it. Just like matter can be changed and manipulated, so can space and time. So I believe he said that after they show a video of a wine glass shattering Mm -hmm. on the ground and and talking about, um, you know, this linear time frame where you have this ordered matter, the glass shattering and becoming disordered. Uh, They say... Uh, and actually, I believe they line that up with um, the universe, actually. Like, at the beginning, the universe was ordered, and it's now just in uh, various states of entropy. Yeah. All right. Well, it is time for us to uh, to take a break. And not because I had a stopwatch, but it feels like time to take a break. Ah, yeah. your, your brain is subconsciously ticking away the moment. Yeah, exactly. telling you. So we're going to take, take this quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about some of the ways that we measure time. And then we are going to talk about time as a possible illusion. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. But We Loved is a podcast about queer history. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, your host. Growing up, I thought being gay was the worst thing I could ever be. The gay history I learned was tragic. Jerry had died of AIDS, and it's like, what is happening? It was survival. That's why it's called survival sex. But as I interviewed queer elders, I realized there was another history that I had never been taught— a history of courage and perseverance. I wanted to take control of my story and not be ashamed of it. And it was a history full of love. The joy we found in saying husband again and again and again was incredible. And while learning this new queer history from my elders, 
I realized they had so much wisdom to pass down. The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. For My Heart Podcast, I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and this is But We Loved. Listen to But We Loved on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School Podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hermosi, Layla Hermosi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so we're back. Uh, so we've been talking about time, about some of the physics of time, the experience of time, uh, and about how, in a sense, all time is local and all time is relative. So if we, we're living in a world of clock time, you know, we have to have means of measuring it. So this is where we enter the world of horology, the science of measuring time. And from, uh, from the outset, a, a horologist's goal is to find something that changes at a steady, predictable rate and use that as a measuring stick for all other changes. Uh, so... Ignoring, you know, various clocks and electronic gadgets that we have, what do you have in your life that is that predictable that you could, you could, you could, in a word, set your clock to? Uh, my daughter. Yeah? Yeah. You could use her as a timekeeping device? I absolutely could, and yeah. I do. I mean, she, she's like the, the clock that crows at 6 a.m. Yeah? Well, yeah. I, well, I guess it's similar to the way, like, uh, our cat, uh, Biscuit is kind of like that. So, you know, we will go through, like, daylight savings time, and our pets never get the memo, so. <laughs> So they 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 are still like yes, 4 a.m. time to wake up. Uh, so so in a sense, uh, in fact, in those cases, we refer to uh, our cat as the furry alarm clock. It's true. Yeah. They they are very adamant about getting you up on time. But um, but yeah, I mean they they are a little horologist, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, needless to say, we've invented a number of ways to pinpoint things in in the, in our perceivable universe in our perceivable world uh, that that have a steady rate of change that we can depend on and use as a time-telling device. One of the most basic, of course, is the sundial, which depends on the position of the sun in the sky, or rather the Earth's position in reference to the sun, rotation-wise. Mm-hmm. Um, one that I find particularly interesting, um, and wrote a little article on for How Stuff Works, water clocks use the predictability of moving water. And uh, these have been around for ages. Like the oldest uh, known water clock uh, dates back to ba- dates back to uh, 1500 BC when it uh, was interred in the tomb of, of Egyptian Pharaoh Amenhotep the first. And the Greeks began using them around 325 BC and dubbed them clepsydras or water thieves. Uh, you have two basic types of water clock. Uh, in an outflow water clock, the inside of a container is marked with lines of measurement. The water leaks out of the container at a steady pace, and observers tell time by measuring how much water level has changed. For instance, if it takes one hour for the water level in a container to drop down one inch, then a three-inch drop in water level means that three hours have passed. Which pretty, is pretty clever, yeah. right? Yeah, as long as it doesn't get too cold. Yeah, the, the inherent problem, though, is that the system of measurement is based on the flow of water. Right. So if you have you know, a huge fire hose of water coming out, it's obviously going to change the rate at which it's accumulating. Yeah, and it's it's one of these things, too. Like, that's a pretty simple system we measure, we talked about there, the outflow. Mm-hmm. But the more complex the system, uh, the, the more unmanageable. Uh, an inflow water clock uh, basically uses the same measure, same principle, only uh, the measurements are inside of a second container, which it drips into. But then it wasn't long before the Greek, Greek and Roman engineers were regulating pressure in their water clocks. Um, they threw in bells, pointers, mechanical displays. Um, the Chinese uh, also got in on this. Uh, their brilliant engineers um, came up with uh, an elaborate water clock tower, some as tall as 30 feet, uh, 9 meters. 
uh, and uh, similar clocks were soon uh, popping up in the Middle East. But they, like I say, they grew so complex that, uh, for instance, uh, there is a century-old water clock in the Moroccan city of Fez, mm-hmm. and it stopped working in the mid 1400s. And to this day, no one really knows how to fix it because it's 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 so complex and it remains uh, uh, inoperative to this day. Do you think that everyone in Fez wears a Fez? Probably not. I'm gonna I'm gonna. I'm going to say no. No. Everyone in Fez does not wear a Fez. I think you're right. Um, I did read that an 11th century water clock uh, would gain uh, typically about 10 minutes or lose 10 minutes a day. And that's not bad, 11th century, right? To be about 10 yeah, minutes yeah. off. Yeah, that's the thing. But but, obvi- but as, as we'll discuss, we get much better as we develop uh, more advanced means of keeping time. And then you don't have to worry about filling up your clock with water. Which, you know, these days you just don't need to do that. Right? Yeah. You, I mean, you can, but it's, it's not going to have the, the same effect. Um, so obviously we have mechanical clocks, which we're, we're not going to spend a lot of time on. We have some really good articles on HowStuffWorks.com about how pendulum clocks work, mm-hmm. uh, about how mechanical uh, clocks work, and the basic uh, clockwork pocket watch. And these use clockwork gears, pendulums, etc. We create a machine that ticks by at a steady rate. Yeah, I mean, basically you have the pendulum creating the motion and the energy, right? right? And then you have the gears that are basically notating how many seconds, how many minutes, how many hours have passed. So you've got the markers again. If yeah. someone's, you know, you look at the rudimentary, like the water line, well, you're just creating different types of water lines here with different technology. Yeah. I mean, it also brings up, of course, the metronome. Uh, right. That helps you keep uh, keep your beat. Or, or uh, you know, George Michael, who's a, a living metronome for the rest of development. Uh, I yeah. thought yeah, for a moment I went to the singer. No, no, no. no <laughs> different, yes. different, different George Michael. Um, and then, of course, digital clocks turn all of this into an electronic function. Now, what about uh, quartz? Quartz clocks and watches, those are paced by electrically stimulated crystals vibrating at about 32,768 times per second. Again, another measurable way to make your markers. And these were developed in the 1920s. And they keep time to within a second per day, so that's not bad either. Cool. But then we have uh, another type of clock that uh, really kind of blows all this out of the water because the long-term accuracy achieved by these timekeeping devices is better than one second per one million years. Yeah, this is this is kind of the big yeah. deal here. And so in this, we're, of course, talking about atomic clocks. Um, date back to around uh, 1945, that's when Columbia University physics professor uh, Isidore Rabi suggested that a clock could be made uh, from a technique that he developed in the 1930s called atomic beam magnetic resonance. And in 1949, the National Bureau uh, of Standards, MBS, uh, now the National Institute of Standards and Technology, announced the world's first atomic clock using the ammonia molecule as the source of vibrations. And in 1952, it was announced the first atomic clock using cesium atoms and the vibration source NDS-1. Um, so I probably need to break this down real quick. Uh, if, if all that didn't make any sense, don't worry. Uh, oh, that's crystal clear. <laughs> crystal clear, <laughs> like quartz. Um, okay, with an atomic clock, we're talking about a precision timekeeping device that depends for its operation on an electrical oscillator regulated by the natural vibration frequencies of an atomic system. Uh, as a beam, such as a beam of of cesium atoms. What is an atom? Uh, Just to refresh, an atom is the smallest particle of an element that can exist, either alone or in combination. The atom is considered to be a source of vast potential energy. Cesium-133 is an isotope of cesium used especially in atomic clocks, and one of whose atomic translations is used as a scientific time standard. And then finally, an SI second, an atomic second, is the interval of time taken to complete... 9,192,631,770 oscillations of the cesium-133 atom exposed to a suitable uh, excitation. So basically what we're saying here is that uh, if you look closely Mm -hmm. at the atomic level, there are things that are occurring at a predictable rate of change, and we can and do set our clocks to them. Yeah, and I just want to point out that CCM resonance uh, resonance was actually defined by the international agreement. Oh yes. To to say this is the standard, this nine billion one hundred ninety two million number mm-hmm. that creates this this um, one hertz or one cycle per second. So everybody in in the, in the entire world would agree on this, right? To move forward with atomic time or the atomic clock. Um, and as you say, the the atoms and molecules they all have resonances in each chemical element and compound absorbs and emits electromagnetic radiation within its own frequency. 
So, yeah, first use of this was with the chemical ammonia. So I think that's really cool because, again, this is, mm-hmm. again, that watermark, this yeah. idea that you can gauge something against another thing to show the passing of time. Yeah, it's 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 really interesting to, to think about it in that way because to time, especially just our experience with, with our, our clocks and our wristwatches, we often overlook exactly what's going on. It's just such a standard part of our lives. In the same way that time is often difficult to understand because we are immersed in it. It is... Uh, you know, it's like a, a fish trying to understand what a lake is. The fish never leaves the lake. Well, I was reading, too, about um, how children begin to understand the concept of time and that they don't really begin to to uh, figure out that it's this linear sort of um, particular to them mm-hmm. element of their life until they're about five years old. So when they're three years old, it's just sort of like moment to moment, whatever they're doing at the moment. It's very present. Yeah. So it's interesting how our brains don't, well, I shouldn't say this because this is an unknown quantity in terms of how we um, mark the passage of time in our brains. But it's interesting how we don't seem to roll out of the womb saying, ah, 60 seconds have just passed. In some ways, it's a bit of conditioning. Yeah, and then you get into the whole... Uh you know, issue of time, time's going faster as you get older. Yeah. Um, which it always seems to be the case. Um, and, uh, and, and everyone attests to this. But, uh, but I've, I've heard arguments that, uh, that one of the things that's going on here, and also one of the reasons that vacations are so memorable and traveling and new experiences are so important is, be, is because as things become more routine, as things become more everyday, we, we focus on them less. They they impact us less, and time seems to pass faster. Where you go on a vacation, you're in a new land, a new place, a new setting, things seem to slow down because there's so much more new info to take in. Mm-hmm. And when we're younger, so much of the world is new to us that uh, that that things, uh, uh, relatively speaking, uh, seem to be uh, happening much slower. A new season of Bridgerton is here, and with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. But We Loved is a podcast about queer history. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, your host. Growing up, I thought being gay was the worst thing I could ever be. The gay history I learned was tragic. Jerry had died of AIDS, and it's like, what is happening? It was survival. That's why it's called survival sex. But as I interviewed queer elders, I realized there was another history that I had never been taught— A history of courage and perseverance. I wanted to take control of my story and not be ashamed of it. And it was a history full of love. The joy we found in saying husband again and again and again was incredible. And while learning this new queer history from my elders, I realized they had so much wisdom to pass down. The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. For My Heart Podcasts, I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and this is But We Loved. Listen to But We Loved on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and the last star on the business. I understand now. 
is a wise man, Marie is a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, and it is interesting to think about how the brain is tagging time. As you said, that a lot of this has to do with memory. Mm -hmm. And there's a really interesting um, study that showed that a specific group of cells in the brain's memory center is encoding for the passage of time. And this was proven out by a Boston University study that looked at the hippocampus of rats. And those rats, of course, had electrodes implanted in the hippocampus so they could figure out the patterns of firing neurons. Mm-hmm. And what they did is they said, okay, rats, here's this, um, here's a little bit of oregano. Smell it because we know you love herbs. Um, <laughs> now we're going to put you into this middle chamber for 10 seconds. And when you get out on the other side, there's going to be a pot of sand that smells like oregano. It doesn't look like it, but it smells like it. If you find it and you identify it, you get a reward. They did this over and over and over again. And what they found is that in that 10 second chamber while they're waiting essentially to go and identify this Mm -hmm. oregano that they've been conditioned to do, they see this really specific pattern of neurons that are taking away time. So yes, it's inextricably linked to memory and how we perceive this passing of time. It's very interesting. Yeah. And then, of course, after the fact, our memories are, are the key to it. So we have, we have, if we have stronger memories of an event, it's, uh, it's going to seem like it happened, uh, at, at a, at a much uh, slower pace. Yeah. I also want to point out this other study. It was a three year study at UCLA that showed networks of brain cells kept alive in a culture could be trained to keep time. The, the team actually stimulated the cells with simple patterns, two stimuli separated by different intervals lasting from a 20th of a second to up to half a second. And after two, just two hours of training <laughs> in a Petri dish, uh, the team observed a measurable change in the cellular network's response to a single input. Oh man, that would be one creepy wristwatch. <laughs> if you had, it's like actual, like organic brain cells inside of it powering it. Wouldn't that be awesome to have a giant Petri dish? Yeah. Just hanging and, and out? I wonder what kind of cells you'd have. Would you just have like, would it be a rat brain watch? Or would it be like, like, ugh, could it be like, yeah. like, like, uh, like people you knew? Their, their brain cells? But that might be kind of lovely in a way. In a way. But also kind of weird. I don't, I don't know. It, but, it, but, but certainly noteworthy. Maybe creepy. Yeah. A loved pet, perhaps, you know? That's a way to keep the memory alive, yeah. right? And the passage of time. Um, so, of course, that is going to lead to, to the question, the inevitable, so is time an illusion anyway. Yeah. We get into this, this whole conundrum here of, of space and time. They're, they're one. And then how do we, how do we make sense of our experience of time and how we, we, we are locked on this linear experience? Of time. Especially knowing that our memory is influencing how we perceive the passage of time. Right. Um, Max Tegmark, uh, the physicist that uh, was on this panel that we were talking about earlier, um, again, he, he's also a great science communicator for, for, for the mass audience. Uh, you know, just, a, just a really delightful guy to hear and read. He makes a wonderful analogy to a movie on a DVD. So he says that our life is a movie. And space-time is the entire DVD that the movie's on. And the DVD is not changing. And that it's wrong to say that the actor in the DVD, the hero, you know, you or I, are traveling through the DVD. Uh, we are traveling through the movie on the DVD. 
So we have we end up having this illusion, he says, of a changing three-dimensional world, even though nothing changes in our four-dimensional union of space and time of Einstein's relativity theory. Um, so... Yeah, the, the the other interesting thing about this is that if uh, if all the contents in the DVD are set, then is there any free will? You know, it, we're we're experiencing the movie. We don't know what's going to happen, and we're like, oh, is is uh, you know, is is is, is the the hero going to get the girl? Is the villain going to uh, to perish? Well, the the movie was was set uh, in in stone from the very beginning. It's just our experience of it that is different. Yeah, so is everything predetermined? Which Drove everybody on the panel nuts too, yeah. right? So, um, and then I also started to think about cyclical time again because within the DVD, you could argue that there's, you can go backwards, you can go forwards. Yeah, or, you know, set that puppy on loop and it's just going nonstop. Right. So yeah. I don't know that he meant that, uh, you know, he was a believer in cyclical time, but I did think that it was interesting that he brought that that analogy up. Now, I realize some of this is probably still um, not all that clear, so I want to read another little bit. And this is from Luke Jones, who's a psychologist specializing in time perception at the University of Manchester in England. And this is from uh, an article called, In Their Own Words, 14 Experts on Time, that uh, is printed in Forbes. You can look it up. Highly recommend checking that out, because a lot of different people from different disciplines, including like the CEO of a watch company, telling you what they think time is. A Zen Buddhist uh, chimes in. It's really a lovely article. But this is what uh, Luke Jones has to say. He says, in our consciousness, we have a persistent feeling of events receding uh, into a past of non-existence, of the future as a nebulous void of possible existences to come, and of the now to which we grant a higher level of existence. But in the physicist view, the dinosaurs, your birth, Christmas morning 2012, and your deathbed all have the same level of existence at this very moment. It is only our consciousness that gives special importance to any place in the timescape. Human consciousness also resists clock time. We know from experiments and everyday experiences that the speed of our internal clocks can be manipulated by changes in body heat, difference in the type of stimuli to which we're responding, and by high adrenaline situations such as car crashes or combat. For example, sounds are perceived as longer than light flashes um, of the same actual duration while adrenaline makes it seem as though time is slowing down. Now, I found that particularly interesting and also very, in a way, comforting. Like the idea that every moment of your life, like your past is not something lost to you. And your future is not something undiscovered. It all exists. And in the same way, like everyone that has been in your life and everyone that will be in your life, they, in a sense, exist in this solid state. I've always thought about that. I've always thought all the people I've ever known sort of rotate in and out, either physically, Mm -hmm. I see them, or, you know, within my own memories, and they never quite go out of the the loop of my particular universe. But I also thought that, you know, we talk about time, we talk about it being linear, but so many of us live in the past or in the future with the possibilities. Worrying about the the past and fretting about the future and, and... You know, we've, we've talked about the, the value of being able to, to focus on the now and then live in the moment. That's right. Yeah. Uh, cause you can't be in two places at one time. Yeah. But it, but I think it's, it's very comforting, particularly if anyone, you know, anyone out there who's, who's lost someone, uh, that they care about to think that they, it's not a situation of they used to exist in the universe, but they are a part of the universe. Uh, and, and our, our language is kind of limited in our ability to even describe such a concept because even our, our, our linguistics are based in a, a linear or at least cyclical understanding of time. Uh, this, this idea of, of space time is this constant. Uh, we, we, we were kind of lacking in even a, uh, you know, an ability to, uh, to, to explain it with language. Well, not to sound like a pro-cyclical, uh, you know, uh-huh. but, but I will say that the more and more that I begin to ponder these sort of things, I think of our existence as just being sort of this recycled terrarium that we all live in. So you've pointed this out before, any bit of water that we've ever, uh, you know, ingested or food is, is, is the chemical matter of everyone and everything else in the world, not to mention that our own bodies are made from the chemicals out there in the universe. Um, so, yeah, you like, know, and every breath that we ever take is from our ancestors' deceased breath. So, yeah, like think of, uh, well, not quite literally, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah, like to, to bring up kind of a weird example, I guess, is think of Adolf Hitler. So Adolf, that is weird. Yeah, Adolf Hitler as an, as the individual, um, was composed like if you were to take all of the the chemicals and, and elements that made up out of Hitler, not at, at it at one particular point, but during the course of his lifetime, mm-hmm. from 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 birth to death, 
and you were to put that in a certain volume, and then you were to say, where are all those elements now? It'd be kind of interesting to, to see, are they part of a beautiful flower? Are they part of somebody who's doing something really good in the world? Are they just, is it just part of the dirt on the floor, you know? Uh, again, everything that, uh, everything does keep going in these cycles. So, um, in, in, in that sense, it's like the cyclical view of the universe is, is very valid, and so is the linear one. There's no discounting the, the linear nature of things. Because as, um, as Tim Modlin kept pointing out, he's like, he, he was making the point of saying, I'm, I'm, I'm completely convinced that I decide in the morning, you know, what I'm going to have for breakfast, and then I have it, and things happen in this cycle. There's mm-hmm. no, there's no arguing with the way that we experience time. Well, it was interesting because Paul Davies would take the other ta- tact of, well, there's no arguing that there are two events, the beginning and the end. Mm-hmm. It's everything in between that's sort of up for discussion. Yeah. So there you go. There you have it. So hey, um, thank you for coming along on this uh, this journey through time and timekeeping with us. Um, again, uh, we highly recommend you check out the World Science Festival's website. You can check out the exact talk that we're talking about uh, here. A matter of time uh, that featured Paul Davies, uh, Max Tegmark, uh, Tim Maudlin, uh, and others. It was really delightful. If you want, especially if you want to see physicists and philosophers butt heads. Um, and if you would like to share your thoughts with us, we would love to hear from you uh, about time. Keeping devices about your experience of time, about uh, how you're processing some of these ideas that might be new to you, about the nature of time and the way we experience it. Uh, you can find us in you know, all the normal places. The mothership, the main place to go, of course, is stufftoblowyourmind.com. That is uh, where everything ends up, where everything ends or begins in our universe. And uh, you can also find us on various social media platforms, including uh, on Twitter, where we are below the mind. You can find us on Facebook, is stuff to blow your mind, and on uh, Tumblr, is stuff to blow your mind. Oh, and uh, Mind Stuff Show on YouTube. And you can also sling your arrow of time through an email. You can send us an email. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> and you can do that at blowthemindatdiscovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.